Hello and welcome to 10 by 9, where nine people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. I'm Paul Dorn and this is the 10 by 9 podcast. It's been a wonderfully busy summer with 10 by 9s happening all over the place and it's not over yet. But on this podcast, there are three stories from our July evening in the Black Box in Belfast, when the theme was, it never rains. And by coincidence, they're all animal related. She proceeded to lift her tail and spray her discontent all over the kitchen. The problem was it moved exceptionally slowly. I thought some assistance was required and so I would encourage it along, vrooming it up like a model racing car. I took a picture of Daddy or Mammy Bird one day. The fecker looked like a crow to me. (laughs) But apparently the experts say there are differences between birds. Yada yada, who cares? So get ready for three stories of a cat, a menagerie and a rescue mission. Some animals may get hurt, but not deliberately, I assure you. Okay, let's get started. And it's the 26th of July, the wettest July we've ever had. And we've had some sodden summer months over the years. And by coincidence, the theme was, it never rains. But nothing can put off the 10 by 9 audience or storytellers. Here's Judith Sjalanskaya. In my attempt to think of a story to share with you this evening, I was reminded of how easily afraid I was as a child of the simplest of things. The banging drums of loyalist bands, The sound of the coal thundering into the bunker, and by association, the lovable, dirty-faced coal man who delivered the coal. He was very annoyed by how upset I was every time he called, and even the 50 pence for sweets he would give me did not ease my irrational fears. But it gets worse. Literally. It never rained, but it poured the fear of God into me. For, as I reflect on things that worried or upset me, they are often linked to wet weather. I was very afraid of rain. I lived in dampest West Tyrone, and my childhood fear of the most common weather feature we have was very real. I was an observant child and enjoyed listening in to all adult conversations. And I now presume that this phase of fear associated with rain was the doings of listening to the stories by my father and his siblings. As children, they were brought up in a small house near Glenlock where the Mourne River flooded regularly and they would have to be evacuated. Now, in my eight-year-old head, I was truly soaking everything up around me. It was also a phase in my schooling where Catholic teachings were summering away in my head and I was taking it all in. I must also point out that I was a bright child and could be very logical, but for a couple of years, my levels of anxiety, prayers to St. Jude, decades of the rosary and direct communication to the big man were constant. God, I swear, I'll never ask you for anything ever again if you would just stop making it rain. I don't want us to drown or have to move house. I just need to point out here that my council house was at the highest point of the estate. And my bedroom window idyllically looked out over fields that led up to two turrets of a 14th century castle. There was never any risk of my house being flooded. 
and we were nowhere near the river. But my constant deal-breakers with God and saying prayers continued and often put me to sleep. I've been trying to understand what my wee head was going through at the time. Weather was certainly playing a big part in things. It was the mid-80s and in my memory, things were grey, damp and autumnal. One of my obsessions as a child was getting the fortnightly magazine with cassette called Storyteller. And the story that had the greatest impact on me was Miriam Margulies reading The Wizard of Oz. And the sound effects on the cassette of the rising winds to become the tornado were always powerful and impactful. It scared the crap out of me. But I listened to it on loop anyway. It got to the point, I think, that I thought I was Dorothy and Kansas was somewhere between Bessie Bell and Mary Gray. I walked to school every day and as I walked up the hill to St Pat's Primary, you could often hear the wind rising. I was transported immediately to the voice of Miriam Margulies and her honeyed whisperings. From the far north, they heard a low wail of the wind. So, between the floods reaching my house and the threat of being knocked out by tornado twirling houses on the way to school, living in West Tyrone was treacherous. <laughs> I'm not even joking. In 1987, after torrential rain and floods in the town, we went down to look at the fast-flowing river and in particular, the older of the two bridges in the town as the arches were completely underwater. And the adult conversation was about whether the bridge might not withstand the powerful floodwaters. Now, for a child with fears of rain and flooding, I really did not do myself any favours. There was the remaining archway further down the river from the closed railway line and the following day that whole arch and the road collapsed under the river. Thank God I wasn't there. My childhood memories often include rain and if I'm not mistaken there were a few years where floods were regular occurrences and I remember one eventful evening in particular. We had not long moved house at this point and our cat Shusha had settled in well. Our beautiful black feline was the boss and she stretched the full length of herself out in front of the roaring fire, chilled out, totally unaware to the continuous biblical downpour that was going on outside. A drenched parent returned from work to exclaim, the river's well up, uh, floods are imminent. I was on the emergency hotline of communication, bypassing middle management of St Jude and senior manager, Mother Mary, and went straight to the CEO. <laughs> right, God, this rain has to stop. I'll die if we're flooded out. I swear to you, I'll never ask you for another thing ever again. Straight into the Our Fathers. Now, whilst my mini breakdown was happening, the phone was a hotline that evening. A friend of my mother's had shipped out all her children to stay with friends and family and just now needed to get herself and her adorable West Highland Terrier to dry land as the flooding waters were creeping towards her bungalow. No bother, absolutely, of course. You are more than welcome to stay as long as you need. Pity someone didn't consult the cat. The lady and her dog stayed for a couple of nights until the rain stopped and they could return home. Now for the time she and the dog were there, 
Our cat took to the hot press and refused point blank to leave. This was the end of our relationship with our beloved Shusha the cat. Heaven has no rage like love to hate returned, nor hell to fury like a woman scorned. The following few weeks saw our cat's behaviour change irreparably. She only came out to eat and toilet, and we eventually closed the hot press to force her to become part of the family again. But she had a dramatic finale to her final exit. So discontented and hurt by our actions of allowing a dog to come into her house and sleep on her turf that she proceeded to lift her tail and spray her discontent all over the kitchen. Shusha never returned to our home but slinkily sauntered across the road and lived out her remaining years with the lovely neighbour. My irrational fear of rain subsided, but my distaste for the wet weather just seeped in to become part of my Northern Irish DNA. As the 1990s approached and secondary school life took over, I wore a brown and yellow woolen school blazer. Catching the bus to and from school just meant that I had the constant aroma of damp dog throughout the school term, with the brown shoulder on which I carried my school bag changing colour to a damp, mossy green. Fun times all the same. But wouldn't it be very boring if we could honestly say, actually here, it never rains. Thanks so much for that, Judith. Poor Shusha. Driven out. And that was Judith's second time at the 10 by 9 mic. And if, like Judith, you've a story to tell, or even just a germ of an idea for a story, then get in touch at 10by9.com and I'll help you to bring it to fruition. Okay, let's get on to our second story. And it's from a first timer. Here's Denise McGill. Growing up on the Glen Road in Belfast, my dad had been a loyal customer of Creighton's Pet Shop in Smithfield where he had bought feed for his bantam hens and met to buy and sell homing pigeons. Cecil Creighton, the shop owner, was a Belfast character. He made a name for himself as an amateur boxer in the 1930s in the Chapel Field Spouts in Alfred Street. His trick to outwit his opponents apparently involved placing a white mouse inside his left boxing glove. As they squared up to each other, he would quietly let the mouse loose. With his opponent distracted, Cecil would catch him with a right hook. (laughs) These white mice featured in Cecil's pet shop also, as did Susie the monkey, who greeted customers from her perch in front of the open fire in the shop in Gresham Street. We were regulars, second generation. In fact, Creighton's pet shop royalty, you might say. Over the many years of our custom, Mum forged a close bond with Mrs. Creighton. You see, as the saying goes, where there's livestock, there's dead stock. And Mum was the one left to manage the ongoing casualties and fatalities of our North Belfast menagerie, as well as the resultant tears. Timely replacements were not always easy to come by, especially in the correct colour. We started out small in our animal husbandry. Our goldfish Daphne and Matilda and Laurel and Hardy went by the wayside. 
sadly unresponsive to the medicinal brandy we had been advised to add to their tank in their final days. They were rather exotically replaced by our first amphibians, turtles. This time, Mum was leaving nothing to chance, and Mrs Creighton was engaged for a home visit to give us instruction on how to care for our turtles. She explained the need for them to spend part of the day on rocks out of the water so their shells wouldn't soften. She also stressed the importance of the turtles being allowed to exercise outside of their tank. I can still clearly remember placing my turtle gingerly on the grass in the garden as Mrs Creighton oversaw the first turtle exercise session. I took my duties very seriously, ensuring my turtle got lots of exercise. The problem was it moved exceptionally slowly. I thought some assistance was required and so I would encourage it along, vrooming it up like a model racing car. Soon there was more dead stock for mum to deal with and my role as a family villain was cast in stone. I had exercised my turtle to death. And even worse, my sisters had subsequently died of a broken heart. Or so she told me. After a protracted series of escaped and expired guinea pigs and gerbils came the homing pigeons and the fantail dove. My sister and I convinced our dad always a soft touch in these matters, that what we needed next in our middle-class home in North Belfast, circa 1974, was homing pigeons. It was not that difficult to convince him. As a boy, he had knocked a hole in the side of his mother's garage one day to make a pigeon loft, after feigning illness and going on the beak with a few of his friends. Our plan was less comprehensive and inevitably less successful. It amounted to us placing a balsa wooden chicken wire coop over the pigeons at our house. The theory was they would become very attached to us and never want to leave. <laughs> the practice was different. Once the coop was lifted after several weeks of close bonding, they simply flew off, <laughs> never to be seen again. I was particularly devastated about the one beautiful white fan-tailed dove in our Avery. I had big plans for it. I was going to train it to fly to school with me each day, wait outside the classroom, and then accompany me home. I had named the dove Belle, after Belle the White Pyrenean Mountain Dog in my favourite TV programme, Belle and Sebastian. Unlike Sebastian, I was not destined to have a special animal friend who would wait for me outside school. My sister was pony mad. Even I struggle to believe the next one, listener. But for several weeks, we kept a black Shetland pony in our back garden. We called him Jody. <laughs> we were going to break him in. Oh, there he is. Uh, and, and there am I also. Uh, <laughs> we were going to break him in and ride him in competitions, ultimately at the Dublin Horse Show. My sister and I fashioned a lasso out of a piece of old rope and tried without success to break him in. We were great fans of Alias Smith and Jones on the TV, agog at the cowboy horse whisperers, Hannibal Hayes and Kid Curry. We couldn't quite seem to work their magic on Jody. His days with us were numbered after he got into the house one day and ate the baubles off my sister's curtains. <laughs> he got his final marching orders back to the farm after he got out one morning and rampaged through the neighbor's rose garden, leaving his delicate little hoof prints across their manicured lawn. Next, a dog. This sounds fairly safe, you're thinking. Think again. 
Zara was an Alsatian who had been dismissed from service as a guard dog at a local hotel at the height of the Troubles. The problem was that Zara kept licking the customers instead of barking at them. Dad said she would make a perfect family pet. Mum was having none of it, convinced that such a breed could never be trusted. Mrs McGarry, our next door neighbour, obviously agreed, as we were to find out. My sister and I decided to induct Zara into family life in North Belfast by devising a game which would capitalise on her greatest strength, licking people. We made a cunning plan, making best use of the metal frame of the swing in the back garden. We would take turns. One sister would tie the other to the swing lying on the ground. Then Zara would be let out and the winner would be the one who could last the longest being licked on the face by the smelly doggy tongue. <laughs> this time challenge was proceeding well. Loud shrieks and screamed accompanied by the customary cheating with the stopwatch speeded up or slowed down, counting aloud to your own advantage. The crack was mighty until mum ran out tearing the dog off my sister, checking for blood and teeth marks. Mrs. McGarry next door had been washing her windows and seeing my sister being savaged by an Alsatian on the ground had wrung mum in a state of panic. Safe to say we were in total disgrace and Zara was also sent off to live on the farm. <laughs> Our ambitions were scaled down after the homing pigeon, Shetland pony and Alsatian debacles. Mum brought us back down to Creighton's pet shop to select a new, more manageable pet. She was at the end of her tether dealing with children distraught due to escaped, deceased and returned animals. This time it was going to be something manageable and in a cage. And so we brought home Joey, the blue budgerigar. He hopped about his cage, admired himself in his myrrh, requiring nothing more than water and seed. He sang sweetly and for a time all was well. What could possibly go wrong? Mum came in from work one day to find Joey lying on his back in the bottom of the cage, motionless, his little claws aloft. She had one hour until we were due home from school. Panic set in, she needed a plan to avoid more tears. Could she say gone this holidays? No, nope, we'd never buy that. The clock was ticking. There was no alternative. She rang Mrs Creighton in the pet shop to say she needed a replacement blue budgie and fast. Mrs Creighton, however was all out of blue budgies that day. When my sister and I arrived home, we went over to say hello to Joey as usual. To our great surprise, he had changed colour. <laughs> he was now yellow. When we asked Mum what had happened to Joey, she replied, cool as you like, uh, um, Mrs Creighton called up to see him and uh, she shampooed him. Uh, Denise, thank you so much. What took you so long? You've been coming here for years. Thank you. Um, first time. Um, I hope you'll be back with us again soon with more stories. Thank you so much. Reminds me, actually, God bless her. Um, my mother, we had a dog, and of course, my, my sister and I came back from school. We also went 10, 9 or 10, and said, where's the dog? And she said, oh, your father took him to the farm. And we were absolutely gutted, obviously. And... Uh, of course, we didn't realize at the time. We thought Dad had taken the dog to the farm because we were always told, oh, he's chasing cars, he's going to get hurt, so we'll take him to the farm. So we believed her. 
Uh, and then, of course, you grow up and you realize just like there's no Santa Claus. Sorry. <laughs> that the farm, of course, means death. So, and yet, till the day my mother herself went to the farm, she maintained that the dog had gone to a farm. And that is indeed true. God bless her. Thanks, Denise, for that tale of woe. I hope you'll be back with us again soon with more stories. Tabanine is always free and always will be, and at the start of each month, we get a small amount of money via Patreon to help cover some of our outgoings, and it's very welcome. If you'd like to become a patron, or just make a one-off donation, check out the link on our website, tabanine.com. We are very grateful to everyone who has supported us. Thank you. But you know what matters most is that you sit back, relax, and enjoy the podcast. On to our third story now, and he had come all the way from Cork to tell it. His second time at Town by Nine, here's Darius Whelan. I don't have a great affinity for animals, whether mammals, birds, fish or insects. I can take them or leave them. They can get in the way, for example, cows blocking a roadway, and they can make a mess, cows pooping all over a lovely roadway. (laughs) I might have more time for Sally the cow and her 20 friends in the herd if they had the decency to clean up after themselves. In 2021, I moved into a house in Cork. The following spring, I noticed the cheeping of birds in the attic right above my room. I'm not talking about pleasant bird song. These were birds who started cheeping at 5 a.m. at a volume of approximately five 747 jumbo jets. <laughs> I endured the noise all summer. Mammy Bird and Daddy Bird had two broods or maybe murders, of baby birds that summer, and I cursed every one of their cute, charming, foghorn-like cheeps. (laughs) I took a picture of Daddy or Mammy Bird one day. The fecker looked like a crow to me, (laughs) but apparently the experts say there are differences between birds. Yada, yada, who cares? (laughs) An expert told me that these were actually starlings. The following spring... I asked the landlady to get a roofing company to plug the the holes in the eaves. It takes a while to arrange this, and meanwhile new starlings are born and start their cheeping. I wonder, if I plug the holes in the eaves, will the little darlings just die in there? I'm not overly concerned, um, but I think their rotting corpses might be a problem. I tell my friend Enda about it. I say, well, there are plenty of other starlings around Cork. It's no big deal if a few die in my roof. They're just, and I struggle to find the right word, they're just pests. Enda nearly falls out of his standing. He says, birds aren't just collections of cells. He says, I might need to think about having a feeling for the poor little birds. A feeling apparently called empathy. (laughs) This plays on my mind for a bit. I think that maybe I can bear it for another summer and then get the roof fixed in the autumn. The roofing company are due to come soon, so I discuss it with the landlady. We decide the roofing guy will assess the job on Friday, but not do the job until the autumn. I begin to lean into my heroic willingness to put up with the cheaping for another summer. I am saving the little birdies' lives. I'm a combination of lifesavers like Bob Geldof, 
Mother Teresa, and Pamela Anderson from Baywatch. The roofing guy arrives, inspects the roof, and says that when the birds are in there, they damage the felt under the tiles by pecking at it. So it's important to repair the roof as soon as possible. But what about the birds, I ask, channeling Pamela Anderson? <laughs> we'll take them out and put the nest somewhere, like maybe in a tree or something. Oh, great, I say. So it's arranged that the guy will be back on Monday at 8 a.m. I merrily tell everyone that the problem is solved. But Enda is wiser than me. He is David Hasselhoff to my Pamela Anderson. <laughs> he says, the birds won't survive if you pluck them out like that. You need to get a nest box for them. On Friday night, I start to Google nest boxes. Again, I will save the day. The deadline of Monday at 8 a.m. is hanging in the air. I'm now Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible. <laughs> There's a helpful red light timer counting down to the time the bomb goes off. The music for Mission Impossible starts playing in my head. The internet reveals vital information for my mission. For starlings, you must have a large box with a 45mm diameter entrance hole. Some of the fancier nest boxes have something I think is a bit over the top, a balcony. <laughs> I'm happy to save their lives, but I'm not going to invest in somewhere for them to sit out of a Friday evening sipping cocktails. I take a break from my research on Saturday morning to go for a walk on the marina. I park in a school car park and return to find that it's locked. Naturally, as the timer is counting down, I abseil over the fence, <laughs> then use dynamite to explode the gate. Well, no, I realize I've no car until Monday, when the car park will reopen, so I get the bus home. No shop in Cork is selling starling boxes. I can't get anything delivered, as it's the weekend. I find a fellow in Killarney who makes boxes of the correct kind. I phone him, and he says he can post me one to arrive by Tuesday, but that'll be too late. I remember that I won a prize once of a nest box in a raffle. That nest, <laughs> seriously. Um, that nest box has since moved on to another house, but I contact the man who made it. He's Justin from the Carrigaline Men's Shed. He says he can take an existing nest box from the men's shed and enlarge the hole to 45 millimetres. I get the bus to Carrigaline and I collect the nest box. I'm feeling like it's mission accomplished. Tom Cruise has defused the bomb and all will be well. The timer can stop now. On Monday, the roofing guy comes and starts removing tiles from the roof. The burns aren't making any noise and I think... Maybe I was imagining it all along. Or maybe the birds double-crossed me by flying away during the night to an enemy roof. After removing about 20 large tiles, the guy finally finds the first baby bird, then a second, then a third. I am vindicated. The guy is now joining me on the next phase of Operation Lifesaver. He has been sworn into the mission to save these lives. He doesn't care about the roof anymore as long as the birds live. We managed to transfer the birds and some of the nest from the roof to the nest box. The box is then hung high up on the wall away from predators. The guy adds a large screw on the outside under the entrance hole so, the so that the parents can perch on that to feed their babies.
This can be their mini balcony. <laughs> Victory is ours. Swelling music starts playing in my ears. Why is it twist and shout? I realize I'm now Ferris Bueller on a platform in a huge street parade, singing twist and shout to thousands of admirers. Just as in the movie, my father is in his skyscraper office and hears the music. He looks out the window and starts dancing along to the groovy tune. At first, there's no sound from the birds in the nest box, but slowly they start cheeping again. After a few hours, their parents discover them and start feeding them through the entrance hole. I reflect on the journey I've traveled from not giving a hoot about the pests to really rooting for them and worrying that they won't make it. I begin to think that the birds are somehow part of my family now, like pets, instead of pests. The birds thrive for about a week, but I start to hear extra racket outside. Some other larger birds are taking interest in the nest box. I see one of these large birds perching on the mini balcony screw, viciously reaching into the hole and grabbing a baby, baby bird by the neck. The starling parents call loudly and rush at the big bird. A battle has ensued and the stakes are very high. I make lots of noise too, shouting at the bird to make him go away. The big bird abandons the effort. I send a picture to somebody and it turns out that this large bird is a magpie. The following morning, the birds are still cheeping and all is well. But in the evening, when I come home, the nest box is silent. I hope it's a temporary silence, but I suspect it's not. Over the next while, I come to the tragic realization that the magpie has indeed taken the baby birds. It hits me harder than I expected. I grieve for my little baby starlings. All I can hope is that they're resting somewhere in peace. What a wonderful story, Darius, and thanks so much for making the long journey from one end of Ireland to the other. We're so grateful. And that is it for this podcast. Check out all the 10x9 upcoming dates on our website, which includes some special events over the coming months. And keep in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Maybe think about giving the podcast a review or rating at a podcast app. It's very helpful if you can. And tell as many people as you can about 10x9 and the 10x9 podcast. Thanks to everyone who makes 10x9 happen. Margaret McClory and Leanne McConville, the wonderful people at The Black Box, which has been our home since 2011, the incredible and generous audiences we meet wherever we go, and of course, all our storytellers, but especially Judith Sjallinskaya, Denise McGill, and Darius Whelan. I'm Paul Dorn, and I'll be back with another podcast soon. But for now, bye-bye.